an in-depth podcast from the Northwest Progressive Institute that brings together thinkers from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho to discuss strategies for advancing progressive causes across our region and beyond. I'm your host, Kaya Burnt, and thank you for joining us. At the Northwest Progressive Institute, we believe that good legislation and good policy don't pass by accident. Were the ideas from increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour to Medicare for all to wider availability of rooftop solar need sound strategies if they're to become a reality. Our team believes that research is the key to identifying winning strategies while advocacy is the key to implementing them. That's why we're engaged in both. You can learn more about our insightful research, imaginative advocacy, and our history by visiting nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org, and I will give you that information again at the end of this podcast. Our topic for this month's episode is redistricting. For those listeners unfamiliar with this process, redistricting is the mechanism by which states reconstitute their congressional and legislative districts every 10 years as required by the United States Constitution, which states that the seats in the United States House of Representatives should be apportioned according to population. Similarly, state house and state senate seats are apportioned on the basis of population, with each U.S. representative or state legislator representing an approximately equal number of people. Redistricting is needed to keep districts from becoming unbalanced and unequal over time. However, the process of redistricting itself can be manipulated for partisan or ideological gain. And as many PNW Currents listeners are undoubtedly aware, states with Republican legislatures use their control over the redistricting process to create maps that are structured to give them an electoral advantage, thereby cementing their power. This practice is known as gerrymandering. In this episode, we'll review Washington, Oregon, and Idaho's redistricting laws and rules, compare timeframes for drafting and voting on new maps, and discuss potential outcomes from this 10-year redistricting cycle. So joining me to discuss how redistricting could reshape our region's politics in the 2022 midterms and beyond are Ben Anderstone from Washington, Annie Ellison from Oregon, and Rudy Soto from Idaho. Welcome to all three of you. Great to be here. Hello. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into our discussion, let's just do some brief introductions so our, our listeners can get a sense of the expertise and experience that this panel brings to this episode of PNW Currents. Rudy, would you like to go ahead and get us started? Sure. Happy to. So my name is Rudy Soto. I'm a Shoshone Bannock tribal member of Idaho. I'm born and raised in Nampa from the Treasure Valley, Canyon County part of the state and uh, I'm a veteran of the Army National Guard and I've worked in politics and especially advocacy for uh, Native Americans for my professional career and I ran for Congress last cycle in uh, 2020 and I work for the Western Leaders Network as an Indigenous Leaders Organizer. It's a pro-conservation, uh, nonprofit, nonpartisan that advocates for climate change, salmon recovery, addressing methane pollution, and so much more, regulating mining impacts. So it's great to be here with you all. Thank you, Rudy. And Annie, over to you. Yeah, my name's Annie Ellison. I am here in beautiful Portland, Oregon. I run an organization called Emerge Oregon, which does three things. We train we recruit and we build a powerful network of women with one goal, which is to increase 
the number of women in elected office who are reflective of the diversity of the Democratic Party. And here in Oregon, we have over 300 alumna, women who've been through the program. We have almost 100 women currently serving in elected office. And you know, increasing that diversity and building a bench of candidates, women who are ready to run, that is absolutely the core of what we do. So we're watching, we're watching redistricting closely and uh, we're just excited at so many of wherever districts are, wherever they go, there's gonna be a really amazing progressive woman who's ready to go. So excited to chat with you today. We're excited to have you on the show. And then finally, Ben. Hey, I'm Ben Anderstone. I'm with uh, Progressive Strategies Northwest. I'm a political consultant who runs candidate issue campaigns and advises organizations and individuals on political strategy. I'm also a big old data geek uh, who specializes in voting patterns and demography here in Washington state and regionally. All right, thank you very much. And I'm Kaya, your host. I'm an NPI staff member and undergraduate at Central Washington University, a Spokane native and internal optimist. I love people. I love theory. Because of that, I'm passionate about bringing people together to have productive conversations that can spark long-lasting progressive change. It's so wonderful to have you all here. I would like to start us off with a few informational questions to give our listeners a sense of how redistricting works in our states. The questions that I would primarily like to ask each of you is who is responsible for proposing new maps in your state? What are the key statutory or constitutional deadlines that are required to meet? And what happens in your state's last round of redistricting 10 years ago? And what were the ramifications for the balances of power in your state's legislature and congressional delegation? Annie, would you like to go ahead and start us off? Sure thing. The process for redistricting in Oregon, it is the responsibility of the legislature. So the legislature produces the initial maps. They then, they have until September 27th, ultimately, to pass something. Otherwise, it's going to go to the Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, who has, she said on the campaign, and she's done it, uh, put together a people's commission of people who've been historically left out of this process. So whatever happens, it is going to be an equitable and fair process. But so the first step is the legislature proposes maps, and then they have 12 hearings. Those are all being conducted online, uh, which has, you know, there's been really, really strong participation. And the governor has just called the special session in which legislators need to go and synthesize the information from these hearings and decide on maps. So that's sort of phase one, right? Same deal with congressionals. If the legislature doesn't come to an agreement, which just to set the table a little bit, in the past 110 years, they have come to agreement once, or sorry, twice. They come to agreement twice. The last time was in 2011. So the last time we did this, they came to an agreement. It is something that's happened twice in 110 years. So if that doesn't happen, it goes to Secretary of State and she will then announce her People's Commission and she will get to work with a deadline with her People's Commission, advising her with a deadline of October 18th. For the congressionals, it's a little different. If there is not an agreement in the legislature on the 28th, so, so the deadline is the 27th, on September 28th, a panel of five judges, each from one of Oregon's five congressional districts, will be announced. 
and they will then get to work to determine the maps. And those judges are appointed by the Chief Justice of the Oregon Supreme Court. So kind of two different pathways. The hearings are happening right now. The draft maps are out. There's three sets of draft maps, which anyone can go check out on the OLIS, Oregon Legislature website. And the big hard deadline is the 27th, and then it goes the 18th being the next really big one. And then I would just add to the last time this happened in 2011, it was a very evenly split legislature. There was very almost equal representation between Democrats and Republicans, and they came to agreement. That process was being led by Suzanne Bonamici, then a senator, now a congresswoman. And one of the things that emerged we've been really excited to see is that when you look on that, I, you know, I attended one of the first redistricting hearings for the first congressional district, which is Representative Bonamici's, and you look at the Zoom screen and I see the chair of the Senate redistricting committee is Emerge alum Kathleen Taylor from 2011 is when she did this training program. The House co-chair is Representative Andrea Salinas, who did this program in 2012. And I see another Emerge graduate, Representative Wednesday Campos, who's on the redistricting committee. And then the person testifying is a parks and recreation leader who's on the Tualatin Hills Park and Recreation Board named Felicita Monteblanco. So I've been really happy to see that Emerge women are at the table in this process. And it gives me great confidence that when smart progressive women are running a process, it is going to be as fair and equitable as the infrastructure allows. So that's given me great hope. The hearings are continuing, people are making their voices heard, and the governor just called the special session. So they're going to go into that special session on the 20th. Thank you very much for that. And Rudy, over to you. Yes. So here in Idaho, we have a pretty exemplary model. It's bipartisan, independent of the state legislature. There's a six-member reapportionment commission. Uh, we call it the redistricting commission. And the folks that get appointed to that are selected by the chairs of each party, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and then the leaders in each branch of the legislature. So the House Majority Leader, House Minority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, Senate Majority Leader. And so it's, it's, like I said, it's a pretty exemplary process and they have 90 days to propose a, a map, to adopt a map and, from the very first meeting. And the, so that was put forth in, uh, the first meeting started on September 1st. So basically by the end of November, they'll have a map that they should have already agreed to. All right, thank you very much, Rudy. And finally, Ben. Yeah, so I think Washington's system is a little comparable to Idaho's in that we have a non-politician commission, or just five members. By non-politician, I really mean non-elected official. Historically, we've had very political people like former U.S. Senator Slate Gorton, uh, Slate, excuse me, on the Republican side. But uh, in Washington, the minority and majority leaders in both houses of legislature get to appoint one member each. So effect, you have a two Democrat and two Republican commission. And then those four folks come together and they elect a fifth non-voting chair who is there to kind of as a guide throughout the process. At that point, they go about the outreach process. This whole thing starts in January. There is a constitutional requirement in May to distribute data out to the counties and cities that need to do their own redistricting. From then on in, it's a lot of public outreach. The completed redistricting plan is set to be uh, submitted to the state legislature 
on October 15th. By November 15th, there's the constitutional deadline for the committee commission, excuse me, to adopt the revised boundaries in conjunction with the state legislature. And then in February of next year, we have the last day for the state legislature to admit the submitted plan on February 8th. And two days later, on February 10th, the plan becomes final. All right. Thank you to all of you for those primers. So let's get into our discussion. As we discussed, the redistricting process begins with the decennial release of the U.S. Census, which serves to provide a picture of changes in population, as well as where those populations are concentrated and the race and ethnicity of our nation's citizens. Originally, the Census Bureau aimed to release those data sets by March 31st, but due to some delays caused by complications from the COVID-19 pandemic, block-level data from the U.S. Census wasn't released until August. However, this may still be our most detailed census yet. Improvements in the self-reporting design offer more thorough options for Hispanic and Latin individuals to report their ethnicity, as well as how people report the areas they live in. Initial findings from these data sets, for example, show an overall increase in population as well as increases in populations in 312 out of the 384 metro areas in the United States. And additionally, although white people remain America's largest demographic group, the multiracial population saw a 276% increase from 2010. I want to get your impressions of the data sets the U.S. Census has released so far. Ben, if we want to go ahead and start with you. Now, first and foremost, it's just absolutely Christmas. This is an incredible trove of information. It's contained a fair number of surprises, too. The increased affiliation among Hispanics, especially with multiracial, racial identity has been really interesting. I encourage people to dive into some of the research being done about what populations are identifying as multiracial among Hispanics. It tells you a lot about American racial identity in a in a burgeoning group. I think another phenomenon is that kind of all-star cities, and this is very important in the Pacific Northwest, had a really big decade. So Seattle and Portland grew at astronomical rates. Boise grew at a very healthy rate too. Also kind of peripheral cities like the Tri-Cities in Washington State, the Bend metropolitan area in Oregon. This has reversed a, a trend of kind of urbanized areas stagnating that we saw in the prior census. And uh, New York City also beat their population projections by about 8% in final data. So there's definitely some some reason, especially among the, the kind of uh, more cosmopolitan progressive set to be very intrigued by some of the data in this release. All right. Thank you for that. And how about you, Rudy? What are some of your impressions? Yes. You know, we, you know, we definitely feel like there was an undercount among the Hispanic, Latino, Latinx communities, uh, mostly due to COVID, the lack of large in-person gatherings as a result of COVID. And then, of course, as is typical, fears in mixed households that include DACA, visa holders, TPS holders, uh, just folks with family members that are concerned about citizenship issues and, and their status. And so while we are enthused and, and, and happy that the numbers reflect our growing representation, we definitely think that those numbers are probably not 
reflecting where they actually are. But it's still good to see those increasing in tribal communities. We're being we're revitalizing our cultures, our communities. And I love what Ben pointed out that there's so much multiracial, you know, there's just so much coming out of this country that is helping people to transition to a different environment where in the past there could be people who would have those demographics in their background but not claim them on paper. And so it's really great that people are feeling comfortable and confident in self-reporting who they are and reconnecting with their identities. And then last but not least, I think, uh, so Idaho came in second across the nation in terms of population growth uh, right behind Utah. And Hispanics were a major driver of that in our rural communities. And so, you know, it's very important for us, this issue of representation. All right. Thank you. And Annie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I was, I mean, in a word, I would say it's exciting, right? The census is the best, one of the best tools that we have for helping us draw these fair district maps that give us an equal voice. And we had a few things, a few headwinds, right? Collecting the census, there was a pandemic. There was a man in the White House who was trying to scare people out of taking it by doing things like threatening a citizenship question and things like that. But what I was really excited by was just the community-driven effort, and I'm sure you saw had this in Washington, Idaho as well, to make sure that Oregonians, whether they were whatever race they were, whatever faith they were, whatever gender they were, wherever they lived, that that they were counted at least as accurately as possible. And obviously we grew so much that we are getting another congressional district. So that was exciting too. We barely missed it out here. Next time around, yeah. Next time. (laughs) That's right. So I want to kind of continue on a thread that you started, Annie, because this year, Oregon Democrats gave Republicans more influence in the redistricting process as part of a deal to get them to stop walking out on the job and preventing bills from being passed per Oregon's quorum requirement during the 2021 legislative session. On September 3rd, lawmakers unveiled their initial proposals. So what's going to come next? Yeah, so what happens next is these 12 hearings. So they're happening right now. We go into the special session, which the governor called for yesterday. That starts on the 20th. They have until the 27th. And then if they've come to an agreement, that moves on. If they have not come to agreement, like I mentioned earlier, the process goes to Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, who's going to take in the advice of this 20-person People's Commission. And the People's Commission is like, you can't have been a lobbyist for the past 10 years. You can't have been, you can't work for one of the parties. You can't work for the government or the legislature, right? So I think it's really emphasizing people who don't usually have their voices heard in this process. And again, like the last time that we passed maps, like, right, two times in 110 years, was when they were very, very equally divided. So I credit the speaker with that. And like I said, you know, we've got two amazing Emerge Oregon graduates, Senator Kathleen Taylor and Andrea, Representative Andrew Salinas, really driving this bus. And I have just a tremendous amount of faith in them that this will be an equitable and fair process. All right, perfect. Thank you very much. And Ben, Washington's redistricting commissioners have yet to reveal their own map proposals for the coming years, but we know some of the most overpopulated districts in the state are in Seattle, like the 36th. 
Will the demographic changes in the last 10 years constrain the Republican commissioners whose predecessors, like the late Slade Gordon and Tom Huff, are widely considered to have done well for their party in the last round? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer, the simple answer is yes. Seattle's growth has not only been in the metro area, but has been in the core of the city. The most overpopulated legislative district in Washington right now is the 33rd, which is the Capitol Hill, uh, heart of Seattle, downtown district. Uh, also the most progressive and democratic in the state. It's about 70% overpopulation, which is wild. So going into this year, we kind of expected at a bit of an effect where because Seattle districts have too many folks in them because of population growth, the surrounding districts would kind of have to shrink in towards Seattle and take in more of Seattle. Now, when we saw the final data, it ended up that Seattle didn't grow quite as much as the preliminary data anticipated. So this effect is probably not going to displace as many incumbents as it might have. This had the potential to be an incredibly crazy year, um, even in the final map, even after the parties kind of reconciled and did their best to, to get their incumbents in, in the right district. Uh, but the Republicans are still at a disadvantage because those Seattle districts have voters to give to adjacent districts, and there will be a bit of a domino effect where more liberal voters are moved into more suburban districts. And I do think that that will, all else being equal, limit the Republicans' uh, abilities to really take advantage of this map. All right. Thank you very much. And then, Rudy, Republicans hold a firm majority in Idaho. However, Democrats get equal representation of the state's bipartisan redistricting commission, as you mentioned. What's the likelihood that the new maps could improve Democratic numbers in the Idaho state legislature? You know, uh, even with being as optimistic as I am, I don't think that it's going to result in us having any uh, substantial increase in Democrats in an outright fashion. But I do believe that there's a real opportunity here for us to have a fair maps wherein the 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 districts are drawn so that communities of interest are maintained uh, such that the voters will get to decide who their representatives are and not the other way around and there's certainly a possibility that you could have this commission with some behind the scenes nudging looking at potentially making more extremist legislators that kind of turn off everybody be a little more susceptible to competitive election. And we kind of touched on this a bit earlier too, Annie, with uh, Oregon gaining a new congressional district this year. Congratulations. How might that change the dynamics of the state's congressional delegation? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we're going to have another Oregonian in Washington, D.C. advocating, you know, not just for Oregon, right? Washington, we share a river, Idaho, we share a river advocating really for the West. When I worked in Michigan, I remember kind of seeing how those Great Lakes representatives, whether they're from Michigan or Ohio or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, you know, they were a region. They often, especially when Trump started messing around with the water, I don't know if you guys remember that, but they were really able to kind of use that, their their numbers. 
so yeah, so we're getting a new congressional district. This is obviously kind of what the press would call the main event of this whole, you know, a lot of it's a it's a I would say it's the main event of, of where it is. We have grown a lot, right? And so the same rules still govern the process, right? They they have to have roughly the same amount of people. They have to be contiguous. You can't draw lines based on partisanship, based on race, right? And they're instructed to keep communities of interest together. So that could be whether it's a natural boundary, like a mountain range or a river, or whether it's a transportation corridors, whether it's a county lines, right? Whether it's, and for some places it's a grocery store. So it's like, if you live, um, like we have pockets of unincorporated Washington County in Beaverton, like around, not in Beaverton, but between Beaverton's other Beaverton, right? And so I think that, you know, taking into account, like what grocery store you go to, what community center you go to, like what churches do work in the area? I think those are all communities of interest. And so as far as congressional campaigns, yeah, I'm super excited that Oregon is going to have another person at the table. And I'm excited to see, excited to see what's next. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think progressives are going to be able to take advantage of that new seat to send another Democrat to represent us? Of course. Progressives can take advantage of every election, (laughs) you know, and that's that's why we train and recruit candidates who are passionate about their communities and can connect with voters. So, yeah, I think it's a huge opportunity. I was having a conversation the other day and it was like a congressional district in an area that's 80 percent Democrat is still a fair district if it goes to the Democrats, right? In a district that's pretty much a toss up, it's still a fair district. Or if it's a Republican area, it's still a fair district, right? It just has to follow those rules. And so, yeah, I think I think we have an opportunity every cycle. You know, Oregon, we had a great candidate make a run for, you know, what folks here consider a Republican stronghold, the second congressional district, because she had a mess. Her name is Jamie McLeod Skinner, also in Merge alum. And she had a message that really connected with people. So yeah, I mean, every election is an opportunity, but I think when you have, we have one more opportunity, which is, and you know, that's why we recruit and train all over the state. So wherever it is, we're going to be ready. I love that. All right. Thank you, Annie. And Ben, Washington has two Republican U.S. representatives who voted to impeach Donald Trump last winter, Jamie Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse. Though each has drawn several Republican challengers, no one knows where the future of the third and fourth congressional districts are going to be yet, which means it's not possible to do any early polling. Do you have any thoughts on how new congressional maps could affect both Herrera Butler and Newhouse's reelection chances? Yeah, so the third congressional district, just to kind of orient folks, is located in southwestern Washington. It is centered around Vancouver, really, and extends up through the kind of Kelso Longview area. The Vancouver suburban part of this district leans Democratic at this point. That's the Portland suburbs. But uh, you get into the more outlying parts of this district, and it is quite Republican. And during the Trump era, has become more Republican. Uh, it's an electorate where the Republican primary electorate is pretty Trumpy. You know, I'm sure Butler is a little bit concerned about that and has several challengers. It is not, however, nearly as Trumpy and conservative as uh, Dan Newhouse's fourth congressional district, which is located over the Cascade Mountains in eastern Washington, centered around the Tri-Cities and Pasco. Um, Dan's district is about as 
right wing as you could get drawing a congressional district in Washington. There is a burgeoning Latino population in that district, but still. Uh, this is a district where Trump received in 2016 and 2020 some of his best showings in the state primary. It's an extremely conservative populist electorate. Both of them have uh, rigorous challenges from their own party. I don't expect that redistricting could move either of their districts enough to get them away from a really Trumpy electorate. There's a distance to go to get to the kind of college-educated, more college-educated, upper-income Republican electorate. Um, however, in the general election, uh, Herb Butler's district could conceivably be moved a bit toward the north, towards Olympia, into territory where the 10th district currently occupies. That would certainly hurt her. Otherwise, they're both districts that are a little bit tricky to add a ton of Democratic voters into, especially the the fourth is just so Republican that that's very unlikely to be competitive in the general election. But uh, I would say that watch the primaries there, especially. And the third in the general, depending on how things go, could also be one to watch. Yeah, it sounds like things are going to be pretty interesting over the next 10 years. It's all going to happen in the Portland media market. <laughs> Whatever happens in that primary. All right. Thank you, Ben. And Rudy, over to you. As we've mentioned, Idaho tasks a bipartisan commission with redrawing congressional districts. Idaho, as you mentioned, has seen a significant change in its demographics. Not only has it seen a 17.3% spike in overall population since 2010, the state's racial and ethnic minorities are growing faster than its white populations. According to the 2020 census, only one in five Idahoans are white. Yet, despite this, the redistricting commission doesn't reflect that diversity. How does the lack of representation impact the drawing of these new voting districts, do you think? You know, this is an issue I've been really outspoken on, particularly because I feel like the Democrats had a real opportunity here to ensure the inclusion of a minority in this process. I know that there were numerous state legislators and influential voices that were presenting this to them and pushing for qualified commissioners to be considered, and uh, they were rebuffed. And so it was deeply disappointing for me and for many here who just feel like, you know, as part of the Democratic Party platform and the 21st century, that's what we're all about as Democrats. And, you know, when it comes to the numbers, when it comes to the contributions of the workforce, uh, you know, in terms of the Latinx, Hispanic community, tribes that are economic engines, not only for their rural reservation communities, but the surrounding areas, they're a stabilizer, especially during COVID. You know, we saw that in many places, whether it be their agriculture, tourism and, and so many other sectors. Uh, there are so many people that are essential to this state. And so in the past cycles, there had been minority representation. And so we just feel like we're going backwards. And, you know, through the public uh, testimony and hearing process, we're hoping that folks will uh, make sure that their voices are heard on this so that at least there's some reassurance, there's some respect and dignity that's expressed uh, for those of us who are not second-class citizens. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's anything that Democrats or progressives in Idaho can do, you know, over the next 10 years to ensure that there's more diversity reflected come 2031? I know that that's looking far ahead, but it's never too soon to start. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's just something that we're all dealing with as a challenge throughout society in terms of just looking inward and figuring out, you know, when it comes to where we work, what where are in our families and throughout our life that we're just taking assessment of, hey, are are we closing people out who should also have a seat at the table? And as we all know, if you're not at the table in some instances or in many you're on the menu. And so when it comes to this redistricting process, the fear that's been expressed even by leaders of the tribes of Idaho has been that our votes could be diluted. And it's not always intentional either. It's just that people could simply not know those community and communities of interest and understand the makeup of the neighborhoods and, and how, when they're drawing these maps, that they might be dividing and diluting the power of votes of some uh, in the communities. And so it's just, you know, really just trying to be more conscious. Great. Thank you. I could not agree more with you. So in a just country, the redistricting process wouldn't be an ideological minefield, nor would it be a tool to maintain rule by the few. In a just country, what would the redistricting process look like for 2031? Do you favor legislatively drawn maps, maps drawn by a bipartisan commission, or maps drawn by a nonpartisan commission, or something else? And if so, why? Annie, if we go ahead and start with you. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, every election when we're doing get out the vote, we were saying we say elections matter, right? And for me to put it in the hands of elected legislators, I do think that's a fair and just process. And the within that, it's, they're democratically elected. The voters put them there, you know, and what we're really excited to see is emphasizing, making sure that, you know, Oregon has grown in significant ways and legislators who are going to draw lines that reflect those changes. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure there's no perfect process to do this. And all we can do is just lead and center equity in the work and make sure that what we're doing really reflects the changes that are happening here, which in Oregon is, you know, we're getting younger. We're getting more diverse and people are moving here, um, which is really exciting. Yeah, thank you for that. And Ben, how about you? What's your ideal redistricting process look like? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say that I have seen states with different methods do fantastic jobs. Oregon seems to do a great job keeping things relatively depoliticized in public perception, even though it's a political process, very, very explicitly. I will say that in in recent years, uh, I've become more and more concerned with uh, things like people losing confidence in the electoral process. And, you know, the the Donald Trump did a lot of damage, I think, to trust in institutions that were taken for granted by most Americans, including electoral institutions. Um, And There is a part of me who thinks that maybe it would be better to make the process as neutral as possible just so redistricting can't be yet another thing that becomes a source of deep set political distrust. So part of me thinks that maybe a system like Canada's system where they set an algorithm 
uh, basically, that's then monitored by kind of a neutral oversight board. It's about as apolitical as I could imagine a system. But I think we need to talk about the downsides. Rudy was talking about identifying communities of interest. Algorithms are not so good at identifying community cohesion and putting people with like-minded interests together. That is something we lose from using more objective um, allocation. So I, I, I am pretty sympathetic to the idea of a more politically neutral and removed system, but I do think we have to have kind of that values conversation before we take that jump. All right, thank you, Ben. And finally, Rudy, over to you. Yeah, well, I am really a strong proponent and supporter of the system that we have here in Idaho that's bipartisan, independent. It came to light that one of the folks that were proposed by the Republicans was a lobbyist, and so he had to be removed and they nominated somebody else. So I think it's important that we you know, monitor just the integrity and the intentions of the people that are being put forth. In addition to minority representation being better reflected uh, in this, I also think gender balance is important. Thankfully, because of Democrats, we have one woman out of the six that will be on there. But, you know, I think we can also do better than that. So, you know, we should be thinking about, you know, peoples with disabilities. It's so that folks who are at the table making these decisions about voting access, voting rights, really are thinking about those that could and should be able to participate fully. All right. Thank you very much for that, Rudy. So we are coming into the end of our time together. We covered a lot of great ground in this episode, and I want to express my appreciation once again for having you all here. Before we wrap up, though, there is one final question that I have for you all. How can listeners provide public comment or feedback to your state's redistricting panel? And what is the deadline for doing so? Rudy, why don't we go ahead and start with you? Yes. So here in Idaho, folks can go to the website is idaho.gov backslash redistricting um, or just Google Idaho redistricting and go to the state legislature's website and you can see the public meetings. Uh, They can provide now written testimony, but they can also go to an in-person meeting. There's a series happening even this coming week where folks can go testify in person and, and as far as timeline, I, I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head, but Cantamos Idaho, Cantamos Idaho on Facebook is a great source uh, to follow. Uh, their mission is to reduce barriers for Idaho's communities to engage in the democratic process by providing training, resources, and information so our communities are not only included, but helping drive the future. All right. Thank you, Rudy. And Annie. Yeah, so nine of the 12 hearings have already happened. There are three more and there's some are open. You know, you have to live in the congressional district where the hearing is being held for. And then there's one more where you're residents of any congressional district. The final ones are all on the 13th. So same deal. You could I could give you a long URL or, or just OregonLegislature.gov slash redistricting. They've got a ton of resources there, including a bunch of the data from 2011, which is really cool. Or if you just Google Oregon redistricting testify the Google machines will take you to where you need to go. But yeah, they've been seeing, you know, massive amount of people, I think partly because they were supposed to be in person, but this Delta surge has 
put them online. There's been a lot of people testifying. So lawmakers will have lots to think about when they go back for the special session. All right. Thank you very much, Annie. And finally, Ben. Yeah. So uh, any Washingtonians who are interested in participating in public outreach, uh, we've had kind of the state tour that they do before actually going to draw the maps, but there's still the post map reveal meetings. Uh, Those will be October 5th at 7 p.m. or October 9th at 10 a.m. You can sign up on the redistricting website. It's a Zoom thing, uh, as as Annie mentioned, in a lot of places. Uh, You can also support, uh, submit your own feedback or even your own map. They let you draw your own map and submit it for their consideration, like a lot of states. And you can do that at redistricting.wa.gov. It's a pretty decent website. Uh, You can also give them uh, a description of what your communities of interest are that they'll consider. So I highly recommend checking that out. All right. That's great. Thank you very much. Panelists, all of you, thank you so much for those insights. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us for our September 2021 episode of PNW Currents with our guests, Ben Anderstone, Annie Ellison, and Rudy Soto. We hope you enjoy the conversation and hopefully gain some knowledge that you can apply to your own advocacy. Before we go, I want to mention an important resource that you can check out if you are interested in apportionment, and that's Dave's Redistricting, a website where you can draw your own maps, just like Ben mentioned, using census data. This site is maintained by a friend of ours and is accessible to all. You'll find it at davesredistricting.org. And I'll be including some of the links that our guests have mentioned on the transcript for this episode's website as well. We invite you to join us again next month, where we'll be discussing how the latest climate science can inform our efforts to protect the Earth, our common home. To learn more about the work that NPI does, be sure to check out our website at nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org. There you will find a transcript of this episode and the PNW Currents Archive, as well as our poll findings, State House Bill Tracker, Elections Hub, and our publications like the Cascadia Advocate and In Brief. I'll see you next time. For NPI, I'm Kaya Brandt.